Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet. I'm the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting, and formerly I was the Deputy Administrator at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, as well as the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere, and before that I was the Oceanographer of the Navy. The American Blue Economy Podcast is a monthly offering on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, and it's brought to you by Coastal News Today. Our goal is to bring together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies for the following objectives, to elevate awareness and advance collaboration to, uh, to, to grow our American blue economy in a sustainable way. We also want to identify positive solutions to the many challenges that exist around uh, this space, as well as providing thought leadership at national, local levels, and regional levels. All this is to support a post-pandemic national recovery, which our, our country is just getting energized for right now. So in this episode, the second one of our year-long series, we will explore our marine transportation system and how to make it more efficient, safe, and productive. We'll talk about things like shipping, navigation, dredging and waterway maintenance, nautical charts, navigation systems, technology, data, and, on, and the workforce behind all that. And with 36 years of federal maritime experience, I love anything that moves people and stuff on the water. And that includes my 19-foot Bayliner powerboat, and the thousand foot long aircraft carrier that I navigated during the Iraq war and everything else in between. So the best way to begin this episode is just to talk uh, about a recent event and, uh, and sort of highlight why that matters and, and how it showcases the importance of the marine transportation system. And this is the grounding of the MV ever given in March uh, in the Suez Canal. So. To put some perspective on this, I, this aircraft carrier I want, was on in 2003 was the USS Kitty Hawk. And the Kitty Hawk, when you compare that ship to uh, this MV Ever Given that was stuck in the canal, that ship displaced, displaced 224,000 tons compared to the 110,000 of the Kitty Hawk, so twice as much as a Navy aircraft carrier. It was 1,300 feet long. That was 300 feet longer than my, my ship. And so even though this, this ship, you remember the vivid images of it being stuck along the, the eastern bank of the canal, it looks just like a giant monument to heavy industry. It's also though a high precision machine. And those ships can navigate within inches of where they wanna go in their desired position. So it's, it's really just an incredible piece of, of, of technology and an important one. Now, uh, it was a sandstorm that was talk that that was the partial cause of, of this grounding. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is the Suez Canal Authority leads 19,000 ships a year or so uh, and about uh, about 51 ships per day. Uh, and that so they, they go through all weather conditions. And I actually don't think it was the sandstorm primarily. And it turns out my my wife's Naval Academy classmate was an Egyptian uh, cadet and he became a naval officer and now is a, is a pilot in the Suez Canal. And so he had friends that were on the bridge and he understood that the, it was the uh, language barrier between the Arabic speaking pilots and the Chinese crew on the ship that might have contributed to this and being the major factor. We'll see. This investigation report will come out. But ultimately, what's the impact? The impact of the canal alone is 1.2 billion tons of product a year. That's 12% of world trade and it amounts to about $10 billion annually. And, and just during that few days it was there, 300 ships had, were backlogged waiting, and about two dozen of them actually rerouted around Africa. Uh, that, leg, that, that, that added about 10 to 12 days of navigation, 38,000 miles, a risk of piracy, 
uh, and also about $26,000 a day of fuel. Uh, so this is, this is big money impacts. And of the ships that were backlogged, 15 of them were headed to U.S. ports or were coming from them. And the, the ports that were affected were New York, New Jersey, Baltimore, Norfolk, Charleston, Savannah, Miami, Houston, and and you know, and and this is just a you know that was just one small uh, impact. When you think about the port of Savannah, that has a supply chain that reaches deep into the Midwest because it's the nation's busiest gateway for U.S. containerized agricultural exports. So this interruption was just exacerbated already a global chain disru- disruption from the coronavirus, and uh, and so you get the point. And and really, global shipping is the lifeblood of the global system, and and marine transportation in the U.S. is is the lifeblood of our American blue economy. And, and the, the statistic is $5.4 trillion, a quarter of G- US GDP uh, are supported by our US seaports. So today's episode, we have some of the rock stars in this field. I'm super pleased to have my friend and former colleague, Rear Admiral Richard Timmy. He is the Assistant Commandant for Prevention Policy in the US Coast Guard. And he's also the Chairman of the Coordinating Board of the Committee for the Marine Transportation System. Rich, it's great to have you. Thank you. Admiral, great to be here with you, and I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Well, and someone who's also close to that uh, that board is Miss Helen Broll. She's the Executive Director of the Coordinating Board on the CMTS, and she also was a NOAA Canals Fellow uh, back in the day. So we've been friends and colleagues for a while, and uh, Helen, I'm just so, so glad to have you with us. Thanks so much, Tim. Happy to be here. We also have Mr. Kerry Davis. He's the head of government relations for the Association of American Port Authorities. And he's also my former colleague in the Department of Commerce. Many thanks for being here, Kerry. Tim, it's a privilege and an honor. And to all the officials in this podcast, thank you for your service. We also have Miss Julie Thomas. She is a senior advisor at the Southern California Coastal Ocean Observing System. And she's the chair of NOAA's Hydrographic Services review panel. Uh, so we also have been longtime colleagues and friends, and we're just so fortunate to have you here today, Julie. Thanks very much, Admiral. Pleasure to be here. Well, all right. Uh, I'm going to kick things off uh, with Admiral Timmy. Uh, how about, if you don't mind, sir, telling us a little bit about your job as the coordinating board chair, that position that uh, you handily relieved from me, and I know are doing much better than I, I could have done. Oh, you're too kind, Tim. Um, yeah, absolutely. I have the privilege of sitting uh, as the uh, chair of the coordinating board of the Committee on Marine Transportation System. And uh, we have Helen Broll here as uh, our executive director and knows much more about it than I do and has a long history with it. But I followed it most of my career as I came up through the uh, what we call the marine safety or prevention professional track within the Coast Guard, working with the nation's uh, commercial maritime interests, uh, port authorities, waterways management, et cetera. Um, and so last summer I had the opportunity to, to take that role over from you, which is uh, a rotating uh, rotating position. But it brings together the interagency at the um, at the uh, level just below really the secretary level as the coordinating board. The secretary position would be uh, the official, the official member, but at the the working level for the coordinating board, we're able to go across, um, you know, the, the, the senior executive service and flag level leadership and bring together MARAD, uh, the Federal Maritime Commission, the Coast Guard, NOAA, 
the Army Corps of Engineers, really the, the interagency with an interest in the marine transportation system. And although we do not make policy, we're able to share our current thoughts and issues so that we're able to bring a unity of effort to um, public policymaking in the maritime domain. And I think we're all better for it to have this exchange of information on a regular basis about the challenges each of our agency is facing within the maritime and how we might best um, create these policies to facilitate the, the continued functioning in a safe, secure, and environmental, environmentally friendly way of a marine transportation system. It's a great role to make sure that none of us are working in a silo and losing track of the good work that goes across the interagency um, so that the Coast Guard, the Army Corps, NOAA, uh, and the rest of the team are following the latest and greatest. And this has been really a wonderful body to have over the years, but in particular, I've appreciated it uh, during the pandemic. It was a way for us to uh, create a, a working group that then could focus on bringing together the interagency on COVID-19 issues. Um, I could talk all, all afternoon on it, but I know we have lots of, uh, lots of different subject materials to cover, but great work. We've continued on a, um, a work plan that you, you, you and your predecessors created. Um, I modified it a little bit with current priorities and we're working, we're uh, moving out on that work plan um, with the staffs bringing us together for a variety of either um, seminars, working groups, uh, interagency action teams, uh, all to move good work ahead that affects all our agencies. So thanks for the opportunity, Tim. Well, yes, sir. It's all about getting government agencies to coordinate better and, and work together and work smarter together. And, and so that's a, that's a good thing in any organization, really, that's heavily siloed like the U.S. government. In fact, but let me step back a little bit further. And I think you're the best person to answer this because you were part of the team that drafted the Coast Guard's Maritime Commerce Strategic Outlook. And, and that document's fantastic. Uh, it just it tells why the marine transportation system matters to everyday people. Uh, do you mind just saying a few words about, about that, the opening parts of that document and how they, they make that really clear? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Maritime Commerce Strategic Outlook, or MIXO, as I'll refer to it um, here on in, um, is one of the commandant-level strategic documents um, that we've produced over here. So this wasn't just from my office, but the Commandant of the Coast Guard, Carl Schultz, um, put this out to guide the vision um, for our program and our Coast Guard and our work across the MTS. Um, if you read the opener, we love to use this opener. The, the, the marine transportation system supports uh, nearly $4.6 trillion in economic activity, uh, employment for 23 million Americans across 361 ports on our inland rivers and coastal waterways. And moving uh, that cargo is the key to our national security and economic security. And so we've taken uh, three lines of effort to make sure that we are focused on that as, as, a, as a Coast Guard. Uh, it's facilitating lawful trade and travel on our waterways. It's modernizing aids to navigation and mariner information systems and transforming workforce capacity and partnerships. And these lines of effort help us keep uh, kind of a balanced scorecard focus on our nation's marine transportation system, whether it's a Coast Guard uh, specific policymaking, or if it, it really does guide our work across the interagency as we try and achieve a unity of effort across what we all do. Um, and it's not always easy. Uh, you know, the maritime, the blue water, 
Um, if you're not a professional in this sphere, um, you may, there's probably not much knowledge uh, in the general public of the maritime, what it brings, what it means to both our economy and our national security. It often functions in the background. And so our strategic outlook is designed to bring awareness, not, a, not only across the interagency, but in a, it's a very public facing document. Uh, it's also very much useful in our work um, on, uh, with, the, with the Congress to kind of shape the issues. And we really use this as our roadmap here for the next few years um, on how we're going to approach this key waterways management um, function of, of keeping uh, the MTS going. Very good. I have to applaud uh, Commandant Schultz's leadership there and, and yours, uh, Admiral, so well said. Let's go to Helen, who is your executive director for this Committee on the Maritime Transportation Systems Coordinating Board. And, and Helen, I, I saw that during COVID, our, our, our system was stressed and it was hard to get keep mariners safely at sea, moving our goods uh, as they need to be moved. And you took some very uh, significant action uh, as uh, in this coordinating board. And can you just talk about some of the steps you took to, to get the system back on step? Um, sure. Thanks for the question. Um, everybody knows that the COVID pandemic was obviously extraordinarily impactful to the nation. And it was certainly the same with our transportation system. And within that, the marine transportation system, the maritime transportation components, whether it's a ship or uh, on the water or the folks that are working in port operations. So essentially, um, the, 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 the pandemic basically shut down a lot of operations around the world. Uh, including port operations, manufacturers overseas, uh, affected our trade um, by water. Um, and with the, um, um, the, we had also shutdowns or slowdowns in ports and vessel operations. And first off, there's a shortage of PPE, just like anywhere else. The ability to get PPE to these folks who have to work every day to support the supply chain was tough particularly because they are essential workers. They were classified as essential workers, but not frontline essential workers. So they weren't first in line to get PPE. However, very proud of uh, one of our, our member agencies, the Maritime Administration, working very closely with um, CDC. Um, they received, CDC coordinated with the Maritime Administration to provide 2 million masks uh, and have those distributed through by the Maritime Administration to the U.S. maritime industry. That was coordinated also with um, a uh, stakeholder group out of, uh, out of DHS, um, and it was hugely successful and very helpful. Um, uh, you know, it, so we know about manufacturing being the slowdown, and that certainly slowed the ports also. Uh, cruise lines were impacted. We think about the international cruise lines, but also it included dinner boats were shut down. Passenger vessel operations were shut down. Um, uh, mariners, because they weren't sure whether they did have COVID outbreaks or not, mariners got stuck on ships for longer than usual. Often when they did get into a port, they were not even allowed off. And then if they were at sea and someone got sick, um, it's really hard to get them medical care. And then when they were a foreign country, sometimes they couldn't get off the ship to get medical care even then. And it was because of COVID. Uh, and getting getting mariners from place to place was challenging. You know, mariners don't live near where they work. So when a mariner, U.S. merchant mariner, gets called out to a vessel, let's say a U.S. flag vessel, it could be somewhere in the country, not near their home. Often it's in a foreign country. So travel under COVID restrictions was extraordinarily difficult. Also, that included crew changes, extraordinarily difficult. Um, and uh, and and 
further, um, during the pandemic, people weren't traveling. They were spending their money on buying things. So really, all of those things had to be moved, and a lot of things coming from overseas. Uh, and um, so when things started up again, manufacturing in uh, Asian Pacific trade in particular started up, there's a huge surge of cargo coming into West Coast and East Coast ports. Uh, and um, they were just slammed. And as a result, there were extraordinary congestion delays. Um, and even this kind of all kind of happened about the time, same time that vaccinations were becoming available, but still not to this essential workforce. Again, not classified yet as frontline essential. So um, uh, because of these volumes, there were bottlenecks at both at East and West Coast ports um, and uh, particularly on the container trades. Um, so the, the Committee on the Marine Transportation System last September um, established a COVID-19 working group. It's chaired by the Coast Guard under Admiral Timmy and by the Maritime Administration. But it has 17 federal agencies on board, including CDC. Uh, and the first, um, the first thing was to have a listening session with industry to find out what the status was. And things were just as dire as I've expressed. Uh, couldn't get PPE in the beginning. Subsequently, they talked about not being able to get vaccines or getting mariners to the vaccines. Um, there was a lot of concern about the cruise ports um, that were uh, devastated economically. Um, the requirements for masks, uh, and, and we have to thank the U.S. Coast Guard for jumping in very quickly to address many issues that affect certainly merchant mariners. Um, in particular, merchant mariners are credentialed, and they are credentialed through the U.S. Coast Guard. Well, a lot of those offices got shut down just like every office got shut down during pandemic. Coast Guard did everything they could, uh, and Admiral Timmy can elaborate on this, but did everything they could to ensure that if a, a license was about to expire, that there was an extension on that, that there was ability to communicate um, with the National Maritime Center that Coast Guard operates um, with regard to taking tests. Um, the, uh, the, um, um, the, the TWIC, the Transportation Worker Identification Credential, uh, which is actually managed by the Transportation Security Administration, they had the same kind of a problem. These TWIC cards are required to work in ports and you get clearances. You, it's, it's actually quite of a, uh, of a to-do to, to get cleared for those, but they become, they expire. And CSA bent over backwards, just like Coast Guard did, to ensure that those that were becoming expired would not just disappear and they would still have them. That was hugely beneficial and uh, very much appreciated um, by, the, uh, by the industry. Uh, Coast Guard also put out a, a marine safety bulletin regarding the requirement of masks in ports and a public transportation along with CDC. Uh, then we also um, felt that, you know, in having um, more open communication, transparent communication between the federal agencies and the industry directly was really important. You can't listen to it, just, just wait for press releases. Uh, and we had a couple of webinars where we uh, provided a webinar to the entire industry and had CDC talk about um, testing. How do you test? How do you test if they're in the middle of the ocean? How do you test? How do you get tests to them? Uh, what are the best ways to manage that? Uh, and then um, when and where you quarantine in advance of getting on a ship or when you get off a ship. And questions like, if you get off a ship, um, do you quarantine there? But can you, or can you rent a rental car and drive by yourself in that car to get home and quarantine at home? There's just logistics questions that uh, people every day may not think about. 
We also had a webinar to talk about um, uh, vaccinations um, to assure people that the vaccinations were trustworthy, that um, they they that they will help um, promote um, obviously a safer uh, community. Um, most recently, um, because of the concern, as I mentioned, that the maritime mariners and port workers are not considered frontline essential workers, that their priority in getting vaccinated was below others. Uh, and there was a concern that they needed it quickly as much as anybody on the front line did because they directly support our national supply chain. So the CMTS gathered its 17 members together and um, together discussed the issue and um, mutually agreed that priority vaccination for mariners and for port workers was essential and incredibly important. So we issued white papers uh, and are now trying to engage with states and localities because really much of the policies of providing vaccinations comes from state and local health authorities, not from the federal government. However, we're working with CDC uh, and particularly our friends in Coast Guard out in the field. We can't thank them enough for everything they've done um, to, um, to, to support the education and understanding of what maritime transportation provides to the nation and why these workers are as much vulnerable as any other transportation worker. So that's just a, a little bit. And I'll, I'll ask if uh, Admiral Timmy to correct me or add to, uh, add to that as well. No, hey, Helen, thanks for the, uh, the summary there. Uh, I do want to just say that uh, as Helen began and talked about as we responded to the, the pandemic, uh, our, our first steps were, as she mentioned, to really reassess the risk in the marine transportation system. Our day-to-day -day function is to kind of reduce aggregate risk across the, the marine transportation system, whether it's in the waterway itself, it's the vessels, the mariners. We have a whole scheme designed to do that. But in the pandemic, the risk equation really did change and, and the disease itself become became the threat vector. And so, as she alluded to, we made a, a number of public policy changes to ensure that what we were doing was addressing where the risk was in the system at the time. And the risk really was the potential loss of the mariners and the port workers who keep uh, the system moving. And so we made the policy changes for credentialing and for TWIC and for inspections policies, um, all to minimize that threat vector. And I thank the, uh, I thank the interagency group as well as the stakeholders that were involved uh, for that, uh, that collaborative effort to get that right. And we continue to tweak it as we go along that to, as, it, as the environment does change. And the environment is changing. Helen just talked about the vaccinations on the issues that we've been uh, working with uh, CDC and all the stakeholders to find a way to make sure that this critical workforce was in fact protected. Um, and uh, as we as we continue to track the pandemic and the changes in it, we're seeing that begin to, to move now. Helen alluded to the states and their role in vaccine distribution. And we're seeing in a couple of key states, Florida and Texas right now, um, they have made the decision uh, at that level to distribute vaccines to any uh, any anyone who is is providing goods and services to, that contribute to the welfare of the state. And so that includes the mariners in the ports and the port workers. Um, California did a similar thing. And so we've seen really good penetration of this message to some decision makers that are, are on the front lines of making those uh, allocation decisions. 
And we're starting to see some real movement with uh, the vaccination of that workforce. Great to hear, Admiral. Thank you. Go ahead, Helen, please. Thanks. Just to add one point, um, I think what we also learned um, is just how um, sensitive the national supply chain is from this. With uh, it, whether it's just the international trade moving from point A to point B over the oceans, because most of our international trade is moved by vessel as compared to air, uh, and um, when ports are congested, the pressure on the intermodal system and getting those goods to the people is extraordinary. Um, so it, it 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 transcends just the the port boundaries. It, it's affecting the railroads, affecting the truckers. Um, it's um, it, it trying to export grain. You talked about Savannah and export grain um, on containers. There's a shortage of containers for those guys because grain is very heavy and they can only use 20 footers uh, containers and there's just a shortage. So they're having trouble. The, the good the goodness, if there's any good news, is that because um, the, all shipping lines are operating at full force, every ship that moves a container is operating in the world system. And as a result, business is really good for them. They are moving as fast as they can to eliminate the congestion in our ports. That does not mean there are not a lot of ships sitting outside of ports waiting to get in, in U.S. ports. There are. But what we're finding is that uh, because revenues are up for the shippers and the maritime side, that uh, you know higher revenues means that they are investing in better services um, uh, for maritime in the system, as well as going to be making some infrastructure investments. So uh, you, you talked about um, how we are coming back um, from it at the beginning of this Admiral uh, Gallaudet, and that's one area in which you know I, I, there are it's not everywhere. Tanker trade, petroleum trade is still at bottom, unfortunately. But uh, with regard to the container side and those high value goods that we rely on every day, business is good. And uh, in that regard, we hope to see greater investments in the system. Right. Good, good, good stuff there, Helen. In fact, uh, I, I, you really illuminated the fact that, you know, when we think about seaports and, and marine transportation, we kind of envision big container ships and, and cranes over them. Uh, but the reality is this is about people, the, the people and the mariners the, and the port workers. And so really a great job, both of you, on, on helping those people get back to work. And, and in fact, I think there is good news here. I mean, of course, the pandemic challenged us, but as there's always silver linings and, 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 and from, from challenges and adversity often makes us stronger. And I think we have a great opportunity now with the, the present administration's focus on infrastructure. And so let me turn to Carrie Davis of the American Association of Port Authorities. And I know you're keenly interested in some of the, uh, the considerations right now for infrastructure investments in our ports. Uh, do you care to say anything about that, Carrie? Oh boy, Tim. Well, what a great setup and transition when you were talking about ports of all sizes and the people that work at them. So if I may, just going to take a minute to tell you who I am and what our organization is, and then I'll talk absolutely about infrastructure like you're talking about. I'm Carrie Davis with the American Association of Port Authorities, and we are the trade association in Washington, D.C. for 78 different ports around the United States. Uh, we actually have members of our association from Latin America and Canada and as far out in the Pacific as Guam, if you can believe it. Uh, but we limit our advocacy or, or lobbying in Washington, D.C. to U.S. ports. 
Uh, and, and the reason I latched onto your saying ports of all sizes, our ports really run the gamut, West Coast, East Coast, Great Lakes, Gulf, fishing ports, cargo, freight, cruise. Uh, we have an awesome uh, variety of ports that we represent in our association. And let me go right to your question, Tim. Big things happening with Joe Biden, uh, President Joe Biden's overall message of building back better. Uh, the way that's taking shape through his package called the American Jobs Plan. The Republicans in the Senate, United States Senate, have since put out a response to that called the Republican Roadmap. Well, guess what? Ports are on the map because for the first time ever in a major infrastructure proposal, ports have money earmarked for them in the package. We're months and months and uh, long nights of negotiations away from looking like what what the final bill or, or package might be, but ports are at the table and we feel great about it. Love to hear that, Carrie. Uh, and in fact, I know that you're looking at things like uh, on the the sort of the the wet side uh, charts and navig- or navigation and surveys, as well as the dry side being things like rail and piers and docks. So um, interesting ab- about all that. I'll come back to you there. Uh, and, but but on what's interesting is you you raised something I thought that was fascinating, and that was the fact that uh, there's uh, the infrastructure plan, I guess, or plans the Republicans and Democrats have put in place. Uh, they one of them, I think. Well, actually, let's just go to Julie Thomas. Julie, you testified at a hearing on this. Uh, can you tell us what you talked about? Actually, Tim, my uh, congressional briefing is on May 11th, so next Tuesday, and uh, it was it was interesting to see, hear Carrie's uh, uh, description here because it is along the same lines as what I'm going to be testifying on or uh, briefing on. It's really not a testimony. Um, we're going to be talking about the value of NOAA and their partners to positioning, navigation, and observations. And I'm going to be specifically representing the four line offices under the National Ocean Services, the National Geogetic Survey Center for Operational Oceanographic Products and Services, which is co-ops, the Office of Coast Survey, and the Integrated Ocean Observing System, which is IUS. So um, highlighting the importance of the foundational products such as the datums, the tidal charts, the nautical charts, and the observations that these uh, NOAA groups are making. And I'm going to be talking about a specific example in Long Beach, which I know you also uh, mentioned on your first podcast. Uh, But this is where approximately 60% of California's oil is imported. And since 2017, uh, with NOAA's precision navigation efforts and the partnership with the Army Corps of Engineers through the CDIP program, which is the Coastal Data Information Program located at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, uh, we've supported this underkeel project uh, program. And to this date, they've uh, brought in 68 crude oil vessels safely transited into the harbor, and that's an additional four-foot increase in their draft. And if one of these vessels is actually fully loaded, this equates to between 7 and $8 million increase in value per transit. So we're hoping that 
the economic and environmental and safety factor of these projects, which depend upon high-resolution measurements and accurate data and a sophisticated information infrastructure that performs quality control and dissemination of the data will be recognized as a major, as a major contribution to the blue economy. Well, absolutely. In fact, I think you could you could really classify data today as infrastructure. And so I wish you luck on that hearing. Uh, there's nobody better to talk about that from your 35 years or more in this field. Um, so thank you, Julie. We'll, we'll, we'll dig a little deeper. But uh, I, I, there's so many things to cover here that just are fun and fascinating to me. And I, I did want to go back to Admiral Timmy on, a, 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 on something interesting. So we talked about the disruption of COVID. Well, as we head into the summer, you know, we're going to have another almost certain disruption from the hurricane season. This happens every year. Last year was a was a big one. And in fact, Admiral Timmy will be heading to take over the Coast Guard sector that's headquartered in New Orleans. And he'll be covering the, the Coast Guard's response to any storms that headed in the Gulf or the Southeast. So, uh, Admiral, uh, you, you have experience here. You were you were involved with Deepwater Horizon response. And I just want to know what you could you, we could share with us about the marine transportation system in that area that you're going to be leading and uh, and how you're going to prepare for any kind of disruptions due to storms or oil spills. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Um, it's a great question. And it's kind of dominated my uh, off duty thinking as I prepare for that assignment this summer. Um, but but that's I'm not the only one thinking about it again. I you know, our leadership here has talked talked about um, what we're seeing with the uh, storm response and major disasters for many years. It's kind of bread and butter for what we do. The 8th Coast Guard District in the Gulf gets quite a bit of that hurricane um, traffic. Uh, last year, I believe it was eight named storms into the Gulf. Um, and again, I'll, I'll look to some of the kind of our guiding documents that, you know, the, the Commandant's um, strategic plan includes a line of effort. Uh, to strengthen the resilience um, across the MTS. And the first piece of that is lead in crisis. Uh, lead in crisis is basically the definition of what they're doing down there during hurricane season. And I get to inherit a, uh, a, a well-oiled machine in talking to uh, Admiral John Netto, who's down there now, uh, given the experience they had last year. But um, there is a prep, there is a prep uh, kind of uh, battle rhythm that goes into that. So if it's real world, you're getting your, your, your repetitions through the real world response. Um, if it's not, you're doing exercises ahead of the season to kind of gear that machine up. And again, this is a unity of effort across the, the marine transportation system. So it's not just a Coast Guard response. It's the states involved, whether it's Louisiana or Texas or Mississippi or whatever. Um, it's their emergency operations centers. It's the local parishes and counties EOCs who are the experts. Um, all response is local, just like all politics. All response is local, and it starts at that, that very foundational level of the impacts um, to those communities. And so we like to have you know, what we call a pre-need relationship uh, with those folks. You know, we're out there, we know our partners, we plan with them, we exercise with them, we incorporate the lessons learned from the busy seasons that we've been through. And um, we are uh, leaning into uh, hurricane season from the day it starts to the day it ends, and it gets more intense every year. Um, but we are uh, getting better, I think, uh, with uh, incorporating uh, technology into our responses, whether it's to ensure the safety of our own families and units as we keep track of them, um, or whether it's to 
find new ways to rescue those in peril uh, through monitoring Facebook or other social media when uh, 911 isn't working or when VHF is not available to a population. So we'll incorporate uh, the, new, uh, the, the new tools that are out there. And then I, I do want to say that we build back better. I heard that uh, just a moment ago. We've received uh, supplemental funds to rebuild post the last few hurricane seasons. And that means taking our Coast Guard stations and our piers that were built 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago and be able to come back and build them to current standards, which are just so important to surviving uh, the initial impacts and then allowing us to respond post-hurricane and get in there and help the communities that are affected. Oh, yes, sir. It, uh, the Coast Guard is just such a, a really a key savior during these types of events. And I know Noah enjoyed working hand in glove with the Coast Guard and doing things like surveys after each hurricane to ensure that waterways were open for navigation. Uh, so, Admiral, you're going to go pretty soon, and and Carrie has to leave shortly too. So, I'll go to Carrie first, and then and then to you as you depart, and then we'll then we'll kind of go a little longer there with our others. But Carrie, uh, there were two parts that you talked to me about this infrastructure bill that can get at uh, I think making our ports more resilient to storms or uh, sea level rise, and and really just helping America prosper and bounce back and build back better, as as you all have said. And you talked about in the infrastructure bill, I believe $5 billion you were looking for. And for the port infrastructure development plan or program, pardon me, uh, about $20 uh, million, I think. Can you just clarify a little bit more about what you're hoping to see? Yeah, thank you. I'll try to answer that as directly as possible. The plans that, uh, competing plans, if you will, mostly in terms of uh, their overall scope and the types of things they focus on. The competing plans between President Biden and the Senate Republicans right now both have between 14 and $17 billion for ports in them, which is awesome, which is awesome. Um, query how that will break down between the types of things that you're talking about, namely the water side infrastructure needs versus the land side infrastructure needs. You also referenced the Port Infrastructure Development Program. So this is how it breaks down from the viewpoint of the ports. This is based on survey data that our association is, feels very confident about uh, when it comes to what our ports around the United States need. And it totals, 20, as you cited, $20 billion on the land side, $6 billion on the water side, and $4 billion for security, technology, and other sorts of modernizations and upgrades. So just to break that down a little further, on the land side, docks, pilings, piers, intermodal connectors with rail, road, depots, distribution centers. On the water side, dredging, harbor, deepening, harbor, widening jetties and other sorts of in water things, including uh, navigational tools that so many folks on this in this uh, group here know a lot more about than I do. Uh, and then the the other four billion for modernization tools, we could unpack that all day. But that is uh, the ask of the port industry when it comes to an infrastructure package. Check. All good stuff, Carrie. Thank you for being an advocate for that. And I know you have to leave us shortly. So I just want to want to thank you again for uh, being with us and sharing your knowledge and uh, expertise. 
Thank you to, for the service of, every, of everyone on this call. Our country is uh, better, safer, uh, and, and more efficient because of all the officials on this call. Thank you. Very nice. Thank you, Kerry. And Admiral Timmy, I know you'll be departing the pattern shortly, too. So I, I wanted to ask you if you had any other thoughts for us uh, on this topic broadly. Hey, thanks, Tim. Uh, you know, absolutely. I, first, I appreciate um, your uh, advocacy in this space uh, as you continue uh, in your service uh, after, uh, after your recent departure from NOAA. And uh, really a pleasure to work for you there and work with you there. Um, I think that it's important that as we um, collectively discuss this problem set, um, that we are doing our, our best to bring visibility to it. Part of our work plan um, with the CMTS is to continue to highlight the value of the marine transportation system to uh, the public and decision makers beyond just the maritime focused agencies. Uh, we, 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 bring, we are tremendously important to our nation's economic and national security um, in the space of what we do in the marine transportation system. And it doesn't always get the attention it deserves. And so I'm, I'm glad to hear about where we are testifying, where we are writing white papers, where we are doing blog posts or podcasts to highlight for the American people, to highlight for decision makers across government the value uh, to, to us as a nation that our waterways bring. And it, it is oftentimes uh, overlooked and in the background. And so when we have these, these forums, these things uh, to bring the attention to the problem sets that are facing either the mariners who are trying to get vaccines, a port that's trying to get deepened, um, or uh, the, the, the update of critical navigation standards. Th these are very important issues competing on a public agenda with a lot of important issues. Um, and so uh, my thanks to the professionals across the CMTS, to yourself, to others who are doing the good work to um, bring this to a broader audience. So I thank you for that. Yes, sir. Happy to work with you and be a teammate again on this important topic. Uh, all the best in your job change, Admiral, and thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Tim. Okay, well, now we are going to finish off the episode with a little more of a focus on uh, a number of areas that both Helen Broll with the Committee on the Marine Transportation System and Julie Thomas with Southern California's Coastal and Ocean Observing System uh, is really know a lot about. And I want to go back to Julie. Um, and Julie, so you talked about the port of Long Beach in Los Angeles and the precision navigation program that NOAA has led. And so the technology is a fascinating topic in this area and how it's allowing us to you know, move these big ships, like I talked about the MV Ever given, uh, with you know, to just high precision uh, accuracy and, and, and optimizing efficiency. And you had shared something with me. I'd like you just maybe to expand upon about the, the the rapid advance and the quality and resolution of data over the last two decades. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that, and why does that matter? Right. Well, thank you, Tim, uh, for that question. You know, uh, as I do visit many ports. Uh, it is true that as the vessels are getting larger, longer, and deeper, as many people know on this uh, podcast, uh, the requirement for more precise, more accurate, more reliable data as, as the stakes get higher, bringing in crude oil tankers that are uh, 1,100 foot long, 
uh, you don't want to have an environmental impact. And uh, you don't want to have an oil leak. So you, you need very precise data. And, you know, I see this. This is one reason why I really enjoyed working with the HSRP on the panel, because um, I, I really appreciate now the value of the core station, the continued operating uh, stations through uh, NGS that are collecting uh, geo-referenced frame, geo-framed um, data all the time. And, and we're getting very high resolution nautical charts that the pilots can take out on their portable units now and have in real time. Um, the observations through the wave data that are critical when the south swell, for instance, hits these tankers on the stern and causes them to pitch at Long Beach. It's very important to high, have high resolution wave data. The tidal data are, uh, are very accurate. And I just think that as, um, as I mentioned, that the stakes are higher, the ships are larger, they're, more, they're difficult to navigate in these channels, and we just uh, really need to focus on these high-resolution, very accurate, reliable data right now. Right, right. And as you mentioned, you gave some statistics about how that is, uh, that is money, <laughs> and so big part of our blue economy. So really interesting to me how data is so critical to advance uh, our, uh, these economic interests on our coasts and oceans and Great Lakes. And uh, related to that data piece is technology. And something that's fascinated me personally, and I've worked to promote, is the uh, advancement of uh, uncrewed or autonomous systems for either data collection. But now more and more, we're seeing the ad advent of autonomous ships in the marine transportation system. And Helen, I think you led a working group or had an effort under the Committee on the Marine Transportation System looking at autonomy. Can you tell a little bit us a little bit about that? Um, the CMTS um, does a biennial uh, research and development, science and technology innovation conference with the National Academy of Sciences, their transportation research board. We held a conference this last March, and it was about autonomy and autonomous technologies within the marine transportation system. So that is both with vessels and on the land side. So what we find about vessels and it, it, that it, that autonomous vessels is that they are here, they're coming, not in a large uh, amount. You're not going to be out sailing in a bay and suddenly see uh, a autonomous vessel coming your way unless you're in Portsmouth, Maine in another uh, couple of months or months when the IBM Mayflower, which is a totally autonomous ship, goes from Portsmouth, England to Portsmouth, Maine in honor of the original Mayflower. Um, and that is under development right now. It's passed its sea trials. You can go online and watch it and follow it as it comes across the Atlantic all by itself, being run remotely. But it has so many sensors on it. I mean, we, we think of remotely as, you know, having a joystick that someone's setting enough with a joystick. But this vessel is, is established to almost think for itself. Um, and think how sophisticated that has to be. That, has, that vessel has to recognize another ship coming in its path. That vessel has to know how to accommodate um, uh, its, it, um, the, the way it pitches and rolls, especially because it will have some cargo on board and it will have a lot of payload for research and development. It's going to stop along the way uh, and take, oh geez, hundreds and hundreds of samples. So it has to act as if there is a pilot on board who understands that ship. 
Um, think about coming into a harbor and recognizing person on a sailboard. That's like seeing a person walk on water. How does a ship recognize that? So it's, it is very sophisticated. Now, let me acknowledge that that is, is a, a super advanced. And we're probably not going to see a, you know, a, a huge change in cargo ships like these big, huge container ships suddenly going remote. What we do see, though, is particularly in Scandinavia, the Danes, Norwegians are awfully good at this. Um, they are already um, uh, making autonomous passenger vessels, you know, that may go across a, a small lake um, and has a specific um, uh, 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 schedule and a, a specific um, direction and return and making those autonomous is not that ch is a little more easy they're also by the way electric for the most part um, but but we should but there are a lot of discussions regarding what is the role of the mariner in this changing um, autonomy climate but I, I do want to caution it is not that tomorrow we're not going to suddenly see autonomous ships um, sailing in on mass into the United States ports Check. I understand that. But what's interesting is we are seeing autonomous vessels for navigation surveys, for example, more and more, and for uh, make observing conditions uh, about currents and water temperature, visibility, and uh, uh, and um, a number of atmospheric uh, properties that are important for the weather forecasting, which affect mariners. And so, Julie, this is your cup of tea in, in the uh, Integrated Ocean Observing System program. And uh, could you talk a bit about what, how maybe uh, IUSE and your Southern California uh, regional program for that are using things like gliders and other type of autonomous systems? Yeah, I was director of uh, SCUS, the Southern California Coastal Ocean Observing System, for nine years. And... Um, once again, you mentioned the advancements in technologies. Gliders have become very sophisticated. Gliders are uh, like one, one and a half, two meter uh, torpedo type things that uh, look like a torpedo that dive down uh, to the depths of the ocean. Um, underwater drones. Underwater drones, thank you. And then they surface, uh, and when they are surfacing, they are, they are collecting data all the way down, or on the way up, actually. And they will collect, collect all sorts of water quality properties. And uh, when they get to the surface, then they will transmit those to a satellite. And the data are immediately transmitted back to the shore base where it is quality controlled and disseminated. So gliders have just been a big boon to the oceanographic uh, observing system because of this profile that you get of the water going down. The HF radar systems that have been developed through IUS now, those are land-based systems. They look out over the water and they are measuring the roughness of the water and they will give uh, an indication of the surface currents. And we have those around most of the coastal U.S. now. Uh, they're very effective for oil response. response. Uh, they, um, they will tell the user which way the currents are taking any oil slicks that might be out there. So any hazardous type materials that would spill. They're also good in search and rescue. There's been instances off of San Francisco where the Coast Guard has used the uh, high-frequency radar systems uh, to monitor currents as far as search and rescue of people. And um, 
with these systems in place, it can actually cut down the, um, the search radius so that the Coast Guard can zero in on where uh, the person that went overboard or whatever the accident was might be. So there are, there's many technologies that are out there. And um, the observing of systems through IUS are really good at connecting with the communities and developing these uh, tools that meet societal needs. Terrific. That's just wonderful. I love that program. And what I saw, it really paid off last year during the hurricane season. Some of those underwater gliders or drones that you talked about, we set up, NOAA set up picket lines in the Caribbean, the Gulf, and the South Atlantic to sense the water temperature. And that helped improve our predictions and warnings for uh, the hurricanes. And one, one hurricane, for instance, the prediction five days out was uh, less than a mile from where it actually occurred and made landfall. Uh, that, that was the value of that data. And, and that allowed the Coast Guard and the state, pardon me, to, uh, to issue evacuations and saved a lot of lives uh, in the Gulf. So thank you, Julie. Um, and I wanted to go back to you, Helen, on a, on a really rising topic uh, here. And that is uh, uh, regarding climate change and the administration's priority to reduce our, our CO2 emissions and our carbon footprint. And so therefore, we, uh, they're advancing uh, wind energy development, as well as, uh, and I'm seeing you know, various sort of uh, studies right now and, and moves by industry to, to lower um, the carbon footprint of shipping. And so I'm curious if, what, what, if, if you are involved with any of those studies or discussions regarding wind farm development or, or low carbon shipping, and if you have any uh, information to share with us about that. Well, sure. I mean, there, there's a, a number of things going on, and um, there is no doubt that ships themselves are, are generators of some pollution. You only have to live next to a port to have a sense of, of what can be generated because they use diesel engines. And normally, uh, pr previously, they used very high sulfur fuel, which is considered called bunker fuel, and it produces sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxide, and particulates as well as carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and hydrocarbons. And there is one assessment that shipping is responsible for about uh, 18 to 30% of the NOx uh, around the world, or 9% of the SOx around the world. And frankly, up, up to 70% of vessels are operating within about 250 miles of the coastline. So yes, they have an impact. Um, one uh, the CMTS itself um, mostly observes um, these changes, but the International Maritime Organization um, passed a resolution, which uh, was effective of January 1st of 2020, whereby um, all fuel that vessels use have to be low sulfur fuels. This is a big deal because the concern was, is that even available? And will the expense be so great that they will make them uncompetitive? Excuse me, in, <laughs> uncompetitive. Thank you. Um, but um, uh, but in fact, um, the incidence of not being able to get the fuel or issues is, is really not that great. This is really important in the Arctic in particular, where these, these um, uh, heavy fuel oils, uh, you know, um, HFOs were used um, for both operating ships, but also carried as a cargo because in the Arctic, on the land side, many of these communities use these heavy fuel oils because they're inexpensive for their energy generation. So one of the things that is looked at um, 
uh, well, around the world, and particularly in the Arctic Council and the Maritime Shipping Subcommittee, is um, the ban on HFOs. And that is under consideration right now at IMO uh, in the U.S., well, in the, in the Arctic around the world, not just the U.S. Arctic. That's significant because um, there is an indication that, that um, the Arctic uh, is heating up much faster than other parts of the world, um, an indication of, of, of climate change. Now, obviously, alternative fuels, both for ships, because ships are starting to look at um, uh, micro, believe it or not, micronuclear reactors. Don't even ask me how they work, but you probably know far better than I. They're looking at, yeah, like, well, yes, but yeah, I guess because they're micro and they may have to be on a ship. Um, they're also, uh, it's interesting that they're going back to that, um, but then also looking at batteries. And how do you manage batteries in, if they're electric? Um, how long can they last? Um, not unlike the Tesla, right? How long can it, can it get you across country, or in this case, across the ocean? Uh, and certainly wind farms. Now, the U.S. Coast Guard is actively engaged on this because the minute you put a wind farm in, in the water, you may very well be interrupting a, uh, a traffic lane, a vessel traffic lane. That's, that's a huge issue. Then on top of that, all of these offshore uh, platforms need servicing. That means then you have ship service vessels that are going back and forth from these vessels and perhaps, again, crossing a regular uh, ship channel. But the Coast Guard, trust me when I tell you, the Coast Guard is very much engaged in ensuring that there are no accidents and there are any number of requests out for public comment uh, on um, you know, of fairways, um, vessel fairways and how they relate to uh, wind farms and other offshore platforms. So, so we're, we're certainly looking at those, supporting our agency members and the work that they're doing internationally and domestically. Uh, and hopefully, uh, we'll be jumping into those issues just even more quickly, especially when it comes to the U.S. Arctic. Sure. In fact, uh, related, you know, we're talking about reducing carbon footprint because of climate change and uh, trying to mitigate that. And Helen, I understand you are going to have an event next week on MTS resilience uh, under climate change. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks so much for, for asking. The um, next week is National Infrastructure Week. It's a yearly event. It includes, gosh, almost 550 different organizations, 60 events across the country. Um, and in conjunction with that, the CMTS is going to join with the American Association of Port Authorities. That's the organization that Carrie talked about earlier. We're going to have a panel uh, next week on the 13th. It will be from 3 to 4.30 p.m. And there's information online through the American Association of Port Authorities. And we're just so pleased. Um, the, uh, the president of AAPA and Admiral Timmy will provide opening remarks. And we have the chief economist from the Department of Transportation to share the messages and information that they are getting um, regarding um, the president's infrastructure initiatives. We have someone talking about uh, the challenges to the export grain community under this very competitive global supply chain that's been impacted by the pandemic and other marketplace drivers. Uh, New York, New Jersey, the Port of New York, New Jersey is going to talk specifically about how they're building their re resilience under climate change and uh, rising sea levels. And then the ports of Virginia are going to talk about uh, the, the way they're going to build their intermodal, their intermodal um, connections, particularly through their rail. So we're really pleased about that. And we really, it's open to the public. We hope everybody will join us. 
That sounds fascinating. I look forward to joining you too. In fact, I just uh, saw online that the captain of the port of New York and New Jersey, Coast Guard captain, I think it's Jason Tama, hosted Secretary Mayorkas for a visit. And uh, because of just the importance of that that seaport to our, our post-pandemic recovery. Well, really good. I could go on and on. I wish we were here longer, but I do have to close. So let me go back to you, Julie Thomas, and ask if you have any final thoughts for us. Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Tim, for letting me participate in this. And, and I just really appreciate uh, you highlighting these important topics for our blue economy. Uh, as we've uh, heard today, I think they're um, pertinent to all of our lives. And I, I just really appreciate it. And I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. It was so good to have you. And uh, Helen Broll, anything else to add? Admiral Gallaudet, thank you so much for including me, but thanks so much for thinking about maritime transportation as part of the blue economy. It is obviously an important piece of our gross national product and a quality of life, but it, it is a partner with the other other um, uses of our oceans and coasts. Um, it is uh, a, a, a complex system. We could talk about pieces of that system all day, but I think you covered a lot of really great material, and I'm just so honored to have been a part of it today. Thank you. Oh, well said, Helen. And the honor was mine, really. I, thanks, everybody. You all did a great job. And I think this was a lot of fun, too. So this, is, this was the second leg of our journey on the American Blue Economy podcast. And we covered some serious maritime territory in the area of marine transportation. And I chose this as our first topical episode after the overview episode number one because of its impact. And it really is it's a massive component of the American Blue Economy. Uh, so I want to thank again our sponsors at the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today. And please join us for our June episode. Uh, uh, the American Blue Economy Podcast uh, is going to focus uh, in June on tourism and recreation, just in time for the summer. And we have some A-listers on this episode. We have Ian Carnes, the founder of the first Pro Surfing Championship Series. We have Megan Haney-Greer, a pioneering and record-setting freediver, television celebrity, and conservationist. We also have Margaret Spring, the chief conservation official at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. So it's going to be a really fascinating and delightful episode. Please join us there. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you again next time. From the bottom of the Marianas Trench, this is ASPN, the American Shoreline Podcast Network.